0: installment of our sermon series on the inconvenient gospel now um, I'm sure you're wondering what this thing is how many of you know what this thing is raise your hand all right yeah it's an advent thing is that what you said it's an advent thing an Advent wreath yeah yeah so um I, as I presumed most of you probably um, grew up in you know very free worshiping church backgrounds where you don't do liturgical stuff and so um I'm going to explain this. Is that okay if I explain this? Because it's going to kind of be like the jumping off point for our sermon tonight. So so um, for most of, of Christian history, right, we didn't have fog machines and laser light shows to help us learn about Jesus. Uh, we didn't have YouTube videos that explain things, right? They didn't have like little, um, little Sunday school books with cartoon characters, right? Um, anyways, what they had is they had other types of imagery that help us understand the message of the gospel. And, and Advent and the Advent wreath and the candles um, is simply a tool to help us understand the gospel and particularly to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. And so the word Advent is Latin. It means uh, coming or arrival. And the Advent season is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. Okay, so this past Sunday... If you're from a liturgical church background, you celebrated the first Sunday of Advent, and your pastor probably talked about hope, right? And so during, during the four Sundays of Advent, this is kind of the idea, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to light the hope candle. We'll go, so each Sunday during the Advent season, uh, we would light one of these four candles on the edge. Uh, the candles and, and the, 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 I guess, the, the concepts associated with them are, are hope, peace, love, and joy, and the idea is this, is that, that we want to take time to be intentional to prepare our hearts for the celebration of the coming of our Messiah. That, that rather than spending time and money at Walmart or Target or Amazon to prepare to indulge ourselves, that rather we should spend time preparing our hearts to celebrate the true reason of Christmas, which is the coming of the Messiah. Into the world, and so we take these four weeks and we focus on these four themes—these four things that Jesus brings when He comes to Earth: hope, love, peace, and joy. And so each week of Advent, we would light another candle. And the idea is this: is that each week as we get closer, we're lighting more and more candles. And then on Christmas Eve, if you do a Christmas Eve uh, vigil or service, you would light the Christ candle in the middle. And the idea is that is that we get closer and closer to the coming of Jesus. The light shines brighter. And brighter as we await the coming of the light into the darkness. And so these are things, some of the things that Advent um, represents. And then uh, in a lot of churches, if you go to a Christmas Eve service that's liturgical, usually what will happen is everyone in the congregation will have a candle and that will be lit from the Christ candle, and you'll pass that light around the room until the entire world is filled with the light of Christ, representing how we fill the world with the light of Christ that's in us. And so this is some kind of... Imagery that we get from uh, the Advent wreath and the concept of Advent. And um, if you guys uh, have never been to a liturgical church that, that does uh, Advent, I think maybe some point you should do that. If not, like this is my personal Advent wreath that I use at home, and we do Advent devotionals with my kids. So uh, I think it's a helpful object lesson. But one of the things that we, we think about is this. It's not just that we are waiting the coming to celebrate Christmas. It's not that we were waiting just to celebrate the first coming, but as we wait for the first coming, we're also preparing our hearts for the second coming. We celebrate that Jesus came once as a baby in a manger, but we also live with the reality that Jesus is coming back, not as a baby in a manger, but as a righteous king and a righteous judge to establish his throne, to establish his dominion, and to judge the whole earth. We we heard earlier um, passage from Matthew 25, maybe for some of you it's a familiar passage, when Jesus is describing to his followers part of what his second coming would be like. And he talks about that, that when that day comes, when the Son of Man is revealed and he comes back, that he'll separate people like a shepherd shep- separates sheep and goats. Now, growing up, I never really understood what that meant, right? Because, like, sheep are really fluffy, right? And goats are not really fluffy. That can't be that hard of a job, right? Have you ever thought that, like, okay, just context, right? So most of the sheep that would have been in the ancient world, in the eastern world, at that time, were not fluffy. Did you know that? And the only way you could tell the sheep from the goat when the sheep aren't fluffy is by their tails, and then by, some of them by their ears, but mostly by their tails. And so it's actually, you'll see a whole bunch of them going together, and you actually don't know until you kind of examine them. So it gives this picture that when Jesus comes back, he's going to examine our hearts, and he's going to examine our lives, and he's going to separate one group of people and say, you're going to be on my left, and another group of people, you're going to be on my right. And Jesus talks about how he's going to separate those people. He says, well, I'll just read it to you again in Matthew 25, Uh, Verse 35 and 40, Um, he says, then the, the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, I think sometimes we think about the inconvenient parts of the gospel. We think about having to go and live far away and things like that. But I think one of the really simple things is for us to live a rhythm of life that awaits Jesus' coming. You see, right now, most of you are living in a season of life that is filled with stress and worry about assignments and projects and finals, and other things. Maybe some of you uh, who are are over-prepared and overthinkers, you have a list of all the people you need to buy presents for, and you're trying to do the math and figure out how do I get my brother and my mom and all the people, the things. Maybe some of you, uh, you celebrated how thankful you were for everything you had, and then you went and spent all the money you have on things that no one ever needs. Ironic. Ironic, the seasons and the rhythms of life that we put ourselves in but, but Jesus is talking to his disciples about living in such a way that we expect, that we're preparing our hearts for the second coming. And I, I wonder if we lived as if our goal was to prepare for that season, for that coming, and not whatever way that our families celebrate Christmas. What if, if we actually lived for the coming of Jesus again on this earth? Would we prioritize our life differently? Would we make different choices if we were truly preparing our hearts for the second coming of Jesus. Now, who are these people? What does it mean to help those who are in need or sick or in prison? I mean, does people, do people really do those things? Do people visit people in hospitals or prisons or give money to poor people? I, I don't know. Are those things. I, I think this is a really difficult thing for us. Uh, I'm going to share with you here in just a minute three reasons why I don't think we owe, obey this teaching, three reasons why I don't think we live our life. Preparing our hearts for the second coming of Jesus. But I think just something that I struggle with. I really like doing campus ministry. I I like you guys. Well, I like most of you guys. Um, I know, right? There goes that rumor about me being nice, right? But, But to be honest, I like hanging out with you guys because for the most part we can have intelligent conversation. We have some sort of common understanding and common background. Even though we may be different, we have a lot of things in common. And to be honest, for most of you, your future is bright. And there's a lot of hope. And what happens to me, and I've observed it in my own life, the longer that I walk with Jesus and the longer I spend time with Christians who are more similar to me, the more I find that I'm insulated away from the rest of the world the more that I find that I don't interact with people who are not like me, the more I don't interact with people whose home life or family life or cultural background is not like mine. And, and the reality is I've I become so immersed in my bubble that I just simply fail to think about the rest of the world. I fail to think about their needs or to consider what matters to them because what I really care about is me and the people that are closest to me, and how things that affect me, and I I seldom think about those who are outside of my circle, who are outside of of where I live, and so I think part of what Jesus is challenging us here as we look forward to the second coming is Jesus coming back for people who are not me-centered, but who are other-centered, and this idea that that in serving others and serving the least of our society, that we are actually serving jesus and we are preparing our hearts for his coming now it seems like a really simple thing right jesus said we should you know this is we should take care of people who are sick we should visit people who are in prison we should give people food who don't have food we should feed people who are in need of clothing and to be honest most of you i think you're pretty generous people right if i said hey guys i'm hungry i actually am really hungry right now i haven't eaten supper yet And uh, if I were to say, I don't have any money for food, which isn't true, and I would say, hey, can you get me some food? I bet at least one of you guys would volunteer, right? Because you like me, hopefully. Or you feel bad for me, I don't know. (laughs) Vin laughed a little too hard. I don't think Vin likes me. (sighs) Hmm. Yeah, because to be honest, it's not scary or risky for you to buy me food, is it? That's not really that sketchy. See, I think the reality is, is some of us have been so blessed. We've had such fantastic lives. Most of the people in this room have never known what it's like to not know where your next meal is coming from. Most of the people in this room have have never experienced the horror and trauma that a lot of people have lived their whole life in. And we seem to be indifferent. We seem to be callous. We seem to be lacking in understanding and unwilling to move towards those who are truly broken. Now, this first reason, I'll just say this. This is me. This is part of where I came from. I think one of the reasons we fail to to obey Jesus' instructions and prepare our hearts for his coming is we have been conditioned to fear the darkness rather than to overcome it. Like any good Christian parents, my parents did the best to shield me from all of the really terrible things in in the world, to keep me away from people that might be bad influences in my life, to keep me away from situations that might be tempting, to keep me out of parts of town that they deemed unsafe, to make sure that my pool of friend group was people that they approved of or the places I went were places that they deemed safe. And I think this is normal for parents to do. And I would assume that for most of you, your parents did something similar. In fact, my parents, I went to a private Christian school until I was in like ninth grade. And finally, I was, I was like, please, don't make me go back. And they're like, all right, cool. Um, but their, their hope, their goal was to somehow keep me safe from the darkness and the evil in the world by keeping me separate from it. And while I see the value in this, and, of course, I'm not going to, like, teach my kids to go play in the street, right? I'm probably not going to, like, put my kid on a plane to, like, Antarctica and be like, good luck. Hope it works out. Okay? Like, being reasonable here. But I do think somewhere deep down we've been conditioned to fear darkness, to fear brokenness, to fear the worst part of society, to, to fear those Who are mentally ill, who are stuck in generational poverty, who are on drugs or alcohol, we've been taught to fear the darkness rather than to believe that the light inside of us is actually the hope for those who live in darkness. And so because we fear the darkness, we presume that the light inside of us is actually not enough. To keep us in those dark places. And so we choose to avoid those things. We we think it's scandalous to think about reaching those people because there are a lot of people who look and act and think and grew up like I did. And so why would I go to those places, to those people? Because what if I become like them? What if, what if their darkness, what if their brokenness rubs off on me? And so we allow our fear of how they are differently broken than us, of how the depth of their darkness. And I'll, I'll be really honest. I, I say this, I think for some of us, we really don't understand how really dark and broken places of this world, not just places, places in this city, places within a five-minute drive within walking distance of where we stand right now, the utter hell that people are living in. We can't begin to imagine, and we don't want to begin to imagine, because it's scary, because if we were to think about it, then maybe we might feel obligated to do something about it. And as long as we've been conditioned to believe that we should fear the darkness rather than be the light in the darkness, then we'll continue to fail to follow through on Jesus' mandate. Number two reasons why we don't respond to this inconvenience of the gospel is we have chosen to criticize rather than to help. If we can blame other people for their brokenness, if we can blame other people for the darkness they live in, well, then it's their fault and we shouldn't feel obligated to help. After all, the grace we received, it was because we were such good people that Jesus chose us. It was because of some merit that before you were born, the Lord chose to bless you with parents that love you or parents that could afford to feed you or give you the opportunity to sit where you sit today. And somehow we believe that we are better than other people because we can look at their situation and point to reasons why we believe that they are to blame for the brokenness in their life. And so we choose to criticize how they got there. We we choose to criticize how other people are helping, you know? Everybody has an opinion about how to fix all the problems until it's their responsibility to fix the problem. Right? You know what's really fun? Some of you, I don't know if you guys have this. Like, I, I have these family members, these uncles. It's really fun, right? We get together for Christmas. My family, we're going to do a big fish fry in a couple weeks. That's, that's how we celebrate. We're a country. And... Um, Listen, I have I have uncles, and they're gonna they're gonna sit on the front porch, and they're gonna argue about politics, and nobody's gonna want to go sit anywhere near them because you don't want to get sucked into that conversation. Do you guys have those people when you get together? Right? Yeah, of course, right? Because listen, it's really easy for us to sit back and criticize what the government is doing right or the government is doing wrong and how they should fix brokenness or they should fix poverty or they should fix injustice or they should fix oppression and all this darkness, it's really, they're just doing it wrong. and We have a million reasons why everyone else is doing it wrong. And we're content to sit back and criticize rather than actually do the things that Jesus told us to do to feed those who are hungry, to care for those who don't have uh, food or clothing or a place to stay, to actually do the things that Jesus commands us to do. And so it's much easier for us to sit back and take this position of analyzing and criticizing rather than actually doing something. It's easy to blame unwed teenage mothers than it is to invite them to come into your home and offer to help them raise their child. Because that's really inconvenient, right? Reason number three that we, we, we don't obey this inconvenient gospel is that we have chosen to live in ignorance of the depth of suffering around us. This comes back to our Christian bubble. We live as if those places don't exist. We live our lives in a way that doesn't force us to think about that somewhere in Pike County, there's an overcrowded trailer park where most people don't have electricity or running water, and their bathroom is a hole they cut in the bottom of a trailer park. True story. we take you there. We choose to live as if this isn't real. We choose to live as if these things don't happen. When I was young, my, my dad, he um, our church had a, like a church van that would pick up kids from a couple different trailer parks. We were really out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so it was the only place they would pick up kids. So my dad would go and he would pick up kids. And there were these kids in the trailer parks that, um, when my dad would drop them off, there would, there would never be any, be any parents home. These are like, you know, 10-year-old little boys. And um, one day, this one little boy, we lived probably four miles from, from where he lived. Um, his parents didn't come home for two days. So he walked four miles from his trailer park, a 10-year-old from his trailer park, and was sitting on our doorstep when we got home. And my dad said, hey, what's going on? He goes, I don't don't know where my parents are, and I'm really hungry. Do you have any food I could eat? We live our lives in such a way that we don't have to interact with people who live in such darkness and brokenness, because that's really inconvenient. It's It's really a downer, you know, to have to think about the things that people in this world go through and the darkness that people live in, the injustice, the things that anger us. Now listen, from time to time, there will be things that are really trendy, and so uh, we love to, to hop on the bandwagon and be really outraged about things that are trendy. But if we're really honest, most of us don't have any meaningful relationship with people who live in real darkness and who live in real brokenness. For most of us, it's a concept that we think about. It's an offering we give once in a while in church. It's a project that we do on, on maybe our spring break or Christmas break. It's a, a trip we do. We go to a, a soup kitchen one day and we serve some plates and we feel like we can check a box and we said we did something. In Luke 14, Jesus is talking to a man who's hosting a banquet. Luke 14:12 He says it says he said also to the man who invited him when you give a dinner or a banquet do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid but when you give a feast invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and you will be blessed Because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. In about a month, we will celebrate the light coming into the darkness. We will celebrate the king of glory leaving his throne and entering into our darkness and our brokenness. And we will sit around a table filled with people who will give us gifts that we give them gifts in return. And it will all be people who we love that already had loved us in the beginning. Jesus is calling us to actually invite people into our lives, to enter into their darkness with them, not just to be a project where we give an offering once a year or we do a kind deed once in a while, but we would actually live our life as a light of the gospel in front of them, that we would actually share our very lives with them in the same way that Jesus left his throne and descended into our darkness. We prepare our heart and we prepare our world for the second coming of Jesus when we become the light in the darkness. We invite those people into our lives. We invite them to sit around our table. We invite them to come and live in our homes. We invite them to go grocery shopping. We invite them to live life with us, to actually have meaningful relationships, to sit and listen to their stories without critique, without offering, well, this is what you should have done, well, it's your fault, and to love them in spite of their brokenness and offer them the same grace and the same mercy that Jesus offered us when he came and he humbled himself before us. You see, if we're going to prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus, we have to live the type of life that demonstrates that we are actually expecting Jesus to come back. And that we actually care about shedding his light on the rest of the world. That, that the gospel is not just a concept that we talk about or learn about, but it is a reality. That it is really good news to those who are broken, to those who are hurting, those who are destitute. And that we would be willing to sacrifice small bits of, of our comfort, to bring light into the lives of the others. Now, I don't have a lot of really practical applications for you, because to be honest, a lot of the things that I think make sense for me don't make sense for you as a college student, right? You probably don't cook meals. You don't have a table you could invite someone to. I don't know. Uh, maybe maybe you think to yourself, "Well, I'm a poor college student. What 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 do I have?" Well. You probably have food every day. You probably have some sense of stability in your life. There's probably something you can offer. In fact, listen, I think one of the things that is probably staggering, and maybe most of you don't realize, is there are students who sit in your classes with you that don't know where their next meal is going to come this time of year, because they're out of flex points, they're out of whatever money they got from student loans or scholarships, and they're just trying to survive. Most of those students are either upperclassmen who live off campus, or international students, and we choose to not think about the difficulty that they have, you know, because we have finals coming up. We have plans for things we have to do. We have to buy gifts for all of the people who are going to buy us gifts in return. You know, I wonder, if we were to take our gift list, maybe you guys have gift lists, I don't know, do you guys have gift lists, one or two of you maybe, right? How many of those people on the list are not going to buy you something in return? or at least don't have the ability to give you something back in return. See, this is the way we celebrate Christ giving us a gift that we could never repay, is we buy gifts for people who will give us gifts in return, and neither of us actually need any of the things that we're buying for each other. And we celebrate the light coming into the darkness. And listen, I'm not opposed to gift-giving. Like, go buy gifts, that's fine. But are we focusing on the values and the principles of the Messiah that we celebrate? Are we bought into a convenient gospel, a me-centered gospel, a gospel that revolves around my comfort and my safety and my satisfaction and what I want? Or have we realized Christ's call to an inconvenient gospel, to a gospel that calls us to the broken, to calls us to those who can do nothing for us? I, I don't know. At this point, I think maybe most of the Angel Tree kids have probably been adopted. Um, DHR probably has a couple more foster kids that need Christmas presents. Maybe maybe you and your friends or your small group, you could go and you could adopt a kid and buy gifts for, for some foster kid that you'll never see, you'll never meet. Maybe maybe you could do something as simple as buy restaurant gift cards to give to the next homeless person that begs from you, because there's a lot of panhandlers usually around Christmas. Maybe you could have something nice to do. Maybe Maybe some... Small place that you could start would just be thinking, Jesus, where are the people that you love and that nobody else loves? And how can I love them? Where are the people that are unlovable, the people that are too dirty, the people that are too broken, the people that we don't think God's grace can reach? And how how can I, in some very, very tiny way, reflect the light of Christ in their life? and maybe, just maybe for a minute, make this next month not about what I can get, but about how I can prepare my heart for Jesus, how I can make sure that that hope and love and joy and peace are not just words that I talk about, but they're actually things that I embody in my heart and that I share with people who can do nothing in return. So, Normally, this is the time where I would give you an opportunity to come forward and pray. And I'm not going to do that tonight. Because I think that would be letting you off easy. To be honest, I want you to sit with this. I want you to think about it. I want you to have it on your mind when you go to bed tonight. To think about the reality is that we are waiting on a king that is coming. A king who tells us he will separate the sheep from the goats who judges our hearts, who judges our intentions. Let us not be people who await the celebration of the coming of the light into the darkness only to keep that light to ourself as if it were for, for us only and not for anyone else. And so I pray that you would ponder and you would think, Jesus, how can I love those that no one else loves? How can I serve those that no one else will serve? How can I be a light to those who are in the deepest darkness? And how can I overcome my own fear? How can I overcome my own cynicism and critical analytical nature? How can I overcome my own ignorance of the realities of the world around us? And so I want to leave you guys with that thought, one of us, and to embrace the life that we live. We did not deserve that. Lord, would you help us to follow your example, that we wouldn't just celebrate your coming in vain, but that we would embody what you came for, and that we would live lives that patiently, hopefully, joyfully, peacefully, and lovingly await your second coming, and that we would live our lives looking for opportunities to feed you and clothe you and love you and provide for your needs, Lord Jesus. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thanks for listening to the Troy Kyalpa podcast. For more information about the ministry of Troy Kyalpa, you can look us up online at troykyalpa.com. You can email us at troykyalpa at gmail.com or find us on social media at Troy alpha. Thanks for listening.